This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 241, and we are recording on July 20th. I'm Jen Northington, and I'm here with Jeff O'Neill from the Book Riot Podcast, filling in for Amanda. Welcome, Jeff. Uh, thanks so much for having me. I, I, I hope I'm up to scratch. I tried. <laughs> I tried. I really tried. Jen. I had a good time picking out questions for you, actually. Mm. I was like thinking about the Jeff O'Neill wheelhouse. Wheelhouses, <laughs> wheelhouse I. Um, yeah. Wheels house. And, uh, and yeah, that was, that was enjoyable to build an agenda for. Yeah, very kind to me <laughs> in the prompt. I'm like, oh, okay. I, I, I know I can do this. This is uh, floaty wings getting booked for uh, Jeff today. Oh, there we go. Well, <laughs> I'm glad. Uh, all right. So let's see. So if this is the first time you are tuning into the show, welcome. As we said at the top, it is a personalized reading recommendation show, which means you can send in your reading requests and we will do our best to find you your next great read. You can send those in either via getbooked at bookriot.com. Or you can put them in the form that's at the bottom of the show notes on the site for each episode. And if you have a time-sensitive question, you're hoping to get a response back by a certain date, maybe it's for a birthday or a holiday or a life event or something, please put time-sensitive and the date, all caps, at either the top of the form or the subject line of the email. And we'll do our best. If we think we're not going to get back to it on air, we might shoot you an email so you can keep an eye out for those. And I think that's all of our housekeeping. So I will read our first question, and then we'll take a little sponsor break, and then we will begin with the recommending. I'm ready. Excellent. So our first question is from Christine, who says, My husband, who has never been a reader of books, recently asked for a Kindle. My first thought was, yay, now I'll finally get him to read all my favorites. But then I realized that if he doesn't enjoy the books he's reading, it's going to be a huge letdown for both of us. His initial reason for wanting the Kindle was to read business books, since he's recently been promoted at work and wants to read things that will help him lead and improve the culture there. Just FYI, he's an automotive engineering manager at a large manufacturing plant. So I'd like to get some business book recommendations, but also just some general recommendations as well that he might enjoy. He loves cars, racing, sports, motorcycles, comedy, action, adventure movies, documentaries, and watching TED Talks. Any help recommendations you could provide would be great. All right, so let's take a sponsor break. Today's episode is brought to you by Gallery Books. So Anna Green thought she was marrying Liam West for access to subsidized family housing while at UCLA, which is an interesting reason to marry someone, but you know, in this economy. So anyway, she signed divorce papers when the graduation caps were tossed and she thought she was done. At she wasn't. Three years later, Anna is a starving artist living paycheck to paycheck while West is a Stanford professor. Now, he is part of a conglomerate. His family owns this mega grocery store chain. He's not interested in working for them, but he is interested in those greenbacks, honey, that come in the form of a $100 million inheritance. To get it, he has to be married for five years. That's where our girl Anna comes back into play. So the two will fake a marriage, but as he gets to know her and gets to appreciate the feisty, foul mouth, paint splattered girl that she is, he'll begin to wonder if the money is worth the love of his life. Pick up The Paradise Problem by Christina Lauren to find out if it is. And thanks again to Gallery Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So 
though a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Okay, so actually, you know what? I'm going to, I like said we're going to do it one way and now I'm going to make <laughs> us do it another because I just keep talking. Jeff, what do you have? Jen, Jen, come I on. I know, Give me I'm a break. sorry. No, I'm kidding. Uh, what do you have for this uh, lover of business books and comedy action adventure movies, etc.? Well, I think, so the podcast is what, an hour? So I'm going to do 58 minutes on this <laughs> is, is that Is that fun? So this is one of my favorite, look, this is where I like these things. I like business books. I like books about cars. I like good books. You know, I'm a dad now. I'm not sure where, where I fit in all of this. So I've read a lot of business books over the last you know decade or so as I've been working on the, the company and everything, and I'm not a business person by nature, trying to figure out how to do these things and do it well and do it responsibly and ethically in a way that you know I can sleep at night, but also keep the lights on. Sleep with the lights on, uh, How to Run a Business by <laughs> Jeff O'Neill. But anyway, um, so a couple things. I'm going to recommend two that I think are both very interesting and entertaining because I, I have to admit some of the most helpful business books I've read are not really entertaining. They're educational and edifying, but as a recommendation, if you want your dad to enjoy the reading process... Ooh, side note. Sorry. She's asking for Rex for her husband. Oh, husband. I'm sorry. I, I immediately put myself in here as a dad. <laughs> in here, so your husband. Well, even better. So um, my first one, I just finished, actually. Uh, it's called Loon Shots by Sophie Bacall. And it is about... How to enable, nurture, and launch big ideas. So it's it's a play on moonshots, which is a standard term of art in sort of Silicon Valley garbage jargon about like taking a big swing at something. And this one makes it loonshots because it's not just about the moon, but it's just you have to be a little bit, they're a little bit nutty. They're a little bit outside the box. So it's not just hard, but also a little bit strange. And how do you find the ideas? And then how do you cultivate them? Because in most of these kinds of ideas, the initial response and probably the rational response to most of them is that is never going to work. But how do you get a culture where you get good ideas and you cultivate them and you try them out and you don't kill them before they're ready to be killed or to succeed? It has a lot of really great history in it, which I find is very helpful in these. There's, there's, there's sort of three kinds of business books that are about this. One, that uses the person's personal experience. Two, that uses a bunch of data. Or three, that uses the anecdotes, right? Like that, that's mm. kind of the, the, the constituent pieces of books like this. The best ones, I think, have a little of all three columns. And this one does. So you get some history, you get some background by Sophie Bacall, who is a microbiologist who started a company. But then also you get some data about surveys and other things like that. It's really fun. The anecdotes are interesting. And it feels important and kind of inspiring for doing business really well. So that's Loon Shots by Sophie Bacall, B-A-H-C-A-L. Uh, as always, uh, I always say this. As always, you can find the links in the show notes. I know Jen and Amanda are really good at this too. My second one is called Good Boss, Bad Vice by Robert Sutton. This is about being a boss and having a boss. And what are the characteristics of good bosses? But maybe more importantly, what are the characteristics of bad bosses? How do you avoid being a bad boss? And one of the really interesting things in this book I've found is there's a bunch of citations for studies about the negative impact having a bad boss is on your employees and your company, but also your employees' life, like your health outcomes for employees are worse. If the boss is bad, according to certain metrics, if people are stressed out all the time and worrying about it, it actually does have very, very important health ramifications. And it's re this is a really funny book. It's, I did it on audio. It was so, so much fun. I put my headphones on to go shoot baskets and listen to it in the park. I enjoyed listening to it that much. So that's an audio book recommendation. Loon Shots I did on Kindle. And um, I guess one just occurred to me while Jen was reading the question. This always happens to me and Rebecca when we're doing recommendations, so I'm sure it happens to you too. If, he's, if your husband's an engineer and interested in cars, racing, sports, and motorcycles, I think he might like What If by Randall Monroe, which is, how do you even really describe it? Randall Monroe is also an engineer and a cartoonist, but he, he takes really wild questions from readers and then plays them out to their logical extreme. So like, what if it rocket roller skates that could go to speed of sound? What would happen? And so he takes very absurd things and then walks through the actual engineering um, ramifications of it. And you get some humor, you get some fun, and you feel smarter to doing it. So that's a third bonus pick. That has a lot of illustrations, so you don't want to do it on audio, but it's really great on Kindle. So those are my three. I really like them all, and I, I hope your, your fella would too. 
Nice. They, I think our listeners know by now that guests mean you get more than just two recs per question. So yeah, well done. I know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Don't I'm be so sorry. sorry. Don't be sorry. <laughs> Those are all great recommendations. I was thinking a lot about like he likes TED Talks. And mm. so that's kind of why I picked Bored and Brilliant by Manoush Samarati, which is sort of a business book, but kind of also not. And we did this as a company-wide read, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, Jeff? Mm-hmm. And it was super interesting because everybody got something different out of it, which I think is, you know, probably pretty standard. But it was fun. And it is it is very compellingly assembled and written in that in my like when I think about TED Talks, I think about like, you know, they have some kind of personal connection to the material. They give you interesting factoids. You come out of it feeling like you've like understood some really key concept that's maybe going to change the way that you think about things, the way you move through the world. And all of those things are true of Bored and Brilliant for me. And as you might expect from the title, it is about productivity and creation from the standpoint of giving yourself, quote unquote, bored time, which basically is about unplugging and not having constant inputs all the time. And there's lots of different ways I think we all you know, distract ourselves. And some of them we don't even think of as being related to productivity or creativity, right? Sometimes you just want to like turn your brain off. But there's different ways to do that. You can do that by, you know, zoning out in front of the TV, or you could potentially do that by zoning out and going for a walk. And Zamoretti talks about all of these different things that she realized as she was she just had a child she was taking like extremely long walks with the stroller to try to get the kid to sleep I think and the impact that those sort of rambling quote-unquote unproductive time walks had on her work it's really fascinating and I think it's a great book both for managers and employees to read actually Anybody who's doing any creative work can benefit from this. And also, it really did change my relationship with my phone. So, Mm. you know, if that's something that you're trying to do, this is a great book to help get you there. So, again, that's Bored and Brilliant by Manoush Zamarati. All right. I get to read the next one. Hi. Hi. I would like to know if you could recommend any fiction books about young women who, out of challenging circumstances, became successful business owner. The more inspiring, the better. Alina. So wait, okay. Now what are we yeah. on? Am I going for you? Can you go, going you can go. You can go. So it's a reverse change up here. Mine is neither fiction nor necessarily uplifting. But hear hear me out on this. Necessarily, I loved this book. It's a memoir called The Orchard by Adele Robertson. The backstory is as compelling as anything. The woman. It's a it's a memoir. Adele Robertson is the the person who wrote it, and she became a successful journalist as a as an older woman after she had a family. And her daughter found the manuscript to the orchard under her mom's bed after she died. And it was about this time in her life that her daughter knew nothing about when she went back to the homestead to try to run the family orchard by herself after her own father died and none of her siblings wanted to take over. So there's kind of a, there's a text within a text, the daughter finding about the mother and the mother telling the story about this time, the dream she has. And it's, I wouldn't say that's necessarily successful, but the way she overcomes adversity, the writing is gorgeous. She finds people that she connects with that really tries to help her do this really audacious thing. I should say it, it's set in the in the late 20s and early 30s, so in the onset of the Depression. So there's a lot of people and how they band together and help each other. And the part of it that I found so interesting as someone who tries to run a business is the dollars and cents is certainly part of it. But the thing that Adele Robertson eventually gets out of this is a, a sense of fellow feeling about what's possible if you connect with other people. So from a, I made a whole bunch of money and now I'm a dole pineapple or something <laughs> of, of the apple farmers in Maine in the 1920s is not that. But I found it really inspiring and lovely in its own way. I think also there's maybe a classical pick for this, Jen, for contemplate that I was thinking about. It's been a while since I've read it. Did you ever read Readers of Broken Wheel Recommend? Did you read that book? Oh, you know, it was on my radar because everybody loved it, but I never did yeah. get around to reading it. I realized after I went off script that maybe one on script, this is about, this is a story, it's by Katrina Bivald, I believe is how you say her last name, where these two women have been pen pals and the protagonist of the book comes to this small town, I think it's in Wisconsin or Minnesota or one of those upper Midwestern Norwegian kind of towns, to meet her friend that she's been pen pals with. She gets there and discovers that her friend has died without having met her, but leaves her a giant collection of books in this little tiny town in 
Wisconsin soda. <laughs> and basically, she decides to stay and start a bookstore here in this little town that didn't have one. And the town rallied ra- around her and around the bookstore. And it was a kind of a big commercial under the radar kind of hit, I don't know, four or five years mm-hmm. ago, I want to say. So that's a little bit more of a fastball down the middle of what you're maybe thinking of, Alina. But then um, my actual pick that I'd want everyone to read is called The Orchard by Del Robertson. So I'm cheating, but I don't know. Jen won't have me back, I guess, if that's all too far afield. <laughs> cheating is a time-honored getbook tradition. Yeah, I, I know. I've listened, to, I've listened enough to know that. <laughs> Yeah, no, interesting, interesting. My pick is is not super straightforward, but I it is a little bit of a get book chestnut and I think it suits the question really well, especially because you you know, young women who out of challenging circumstances become successful business owners. So my pick is The Chef by Marie NDA. And the chef is spelled with an extra F-E on the end because that is apparently the French designation for a female chef. English doesn't really have an equivalent and you say it the same, but it's a spelling thing. It's in the show notes, not to worry. Uh, It's translated by Jordan Stump. And as you know, if you've listened to the show, I got obsessed with this book. It's so (laughs) interesting because it is, first of all, the story of a young woman who comes from extreme poverty and gets a job as a like housemaid to this couple and ends up taking over and becoming their cook. And from there becomes like a world renowned Michelin star winning chef. But the story is being told from the POV of one of her staff. And this woman is very known to be reclusive, doesn't really talk to reporters, doesn't talk to journalists, doesn't like, you know, talk much about her life or where she came from. But this staff member is saying like, well, I knew the real her. None of y'all know the real her, but I knew the real Mm. her. He's clearly like a little bit obsessed with her in a slightly uncomfortable way. And so he's telling this reporter uh, the story of her life. He's also telling you some things about himself. He is not an entirely reliable narrator. There's some real interesting stuff that develops along those lines as the book goes on. But it's such an atmospheric book. So I once said that this book was like if Chef's Table was a novel. And I stand by it because you're seeing her in the kitchen. You're seeing her develop recipes. But then you're also getting this sort of, like I said, very atmospheric, very meandering story of how she got there and what it was like for her to become this, you know, amazing, renowned chef and the struggles that she faced and also the story of this uh, assistant chef who has their his own agenda. And it's really fascinating and really, really good. So again, that's The Chef by Marie NDA and translated by Jordan Stump. Fascinating. Yeah, it's so good. Ugh, I just, clearly I cannot shut up about it. But I haven't used up my picks for it this year yet, so <laughs> so it counts. It's so awesome. <laughs> All right, our next question is from April, who says, I recently finished Mayor Pete Buttigieg's book, Shortest Way Home. I was reading it for insight on a presidential candidate, but I found myself fascinated by the daily political thought process of a city leader. I didn't expect to want to take a reading dive into a whole new genre I'm not sure exists. Any recs on contemporary city leader memoirs, like Parks and Recreation, but real? I guess if someone's written a fiction book in the same vein, I'd go for that too. Jeff, I honestly picked this one mostly for the Parks and Recreation, but real, because I know you're a huge fan of this show. I do love Parks and Recreation. I actually do have a pick for this one. But before I do that, can I do a, a weird pl- a thing you might like? we might like here anyway? It's an old annotated I did called Democracy by the Book, which is the story of from my hometown of Lawrence, Kansas, someone with no prior political experience walks into a library and asks if they have any book about running for political office, and they do. And this woman ends up winning her campaign to get on the city council in Lawrence. And me and my friend Victor did the story. It's a true story. And if so, you like this kind of vein, it's a good listen. Jeff Jen can put the link in the show notes there too. Absolutely. It's not quite a book length kind of a topic, but it's a feel good story about local politics, which is essentially, I guess, what the Parks and Rec kind of thing is. Like it's this, it doesn't sound. April, like you want a downer of a book about how cities are rotting and, you know, what all the problems... No, I'm serious. Like, that's what the Parks and Rec thing is. So I picked Mayor by Michael Nutter, who was mayor of uh, Philadelphia, Jen, Mm. uh, for 15 years. His term ended in 2016. Before that, he'd been on city council for a long time. And it's a pretty fascinating look at what it means to be a mayor of a major metropolitan city. And the the, the Occupy Philadelphia happened during his term. Um, Obama's 
run and presidency happens during his term. There were hurricanes and protests and successes and failures, and crime was down and crime was up, and ultimately crime was down. And I had never really read anything quite like it. So it's a little bit bigger scale than South Bend, Indiana, <laughs> where Mayor Pete is from, and uh, than Pawnee, Indiana. But it's about, you know, how to manage the trash, all the stuff, all the way up stuff from trash collection to national politics. The scale of a big city mayor is really kind of astounding. Like, you're almost a senator in terms of influence, in terms of the number of people under direct, you know, jurisdiction. But then you have all the way down to very, very small things like parking fine policy and stuff like that. And then there's the social justice pieces of being a a major northeastern city and being a black person, a black man especially. Uh, fascinating book. There's no audio version, which it was. it's pretty late in the game. I think it came out in 2017. I think it's only three years old. So it's text only, which Rebecca and I always mention if there's no audiobook for some reason. So I'm not something you guys care about, but I'm such an audiobook listener that it kind of matters. But this one I picked up, frankly, after what's his name was elected of late, you know, the guy in the place mm-hmm. um, that I don't want to talk mm-hmm. about. And I was looking for something to make me feel, you know, a little bit better or just kind of a different perspective or these things still work. And I think that's the other piece that you're looking for here is an uplifting affirmative role, you know, portrayal of government. And I think this one ultimately is. So that's Mayor by Michael Nutter. I just have to take a moment to say that I'm pretty good at Google, but my Google skills utterly failed me because I literally went searching for a local Philadelphia political memoir, (laughs) and I did not come up with this book, which makes me angry. I don't think it sold very well because I was looking it up, and look, it only has like four ratings on Amazon, which is... That's nothing. It's hard to find. I'm frankly, something that's on there at all from a... I mean, it's from... It's the University of Pennsylvania Press. So it's a it's a local university presses, but it's not self-pub or right. something like that where you don't get anyone. Yeah. So it's also pretty short. It's a couple hundred pages, so you be, you could knock it out pretty quick. But Ideal, ideal. I thought it was really interesting. Anyway. Yeah, no, I will definitely pick that up. Um, obviously, it is very relevant to my current living situation. So <laughs> I picked, it's a little bit sideways from what you wanted. I guess this is the show where I go sideways. I, don't th- I thought about this too. I thought about this too. I don't think it's okay, sideways. Okay, all right. Okay, anyway, I'm defending you. No, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> it's I picked Lead from the Outside by Stacey Abrams. And the reason I feel like I, I'm justifying this as being a little bit outside is because it is not a straight memoir. It is yeah. a like how to that includes personal experience. Right. Like it's like almost literally mm-hmm. a workbook in certain sections. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. But so Stacey Abrams, I think I don't have to introduce her, but I will just in case. She is a Georgia politician. She was the minority leader for the Georgia General Assembly. Um, She ran for governor. She's like, you know, very well known in current politics. She's a black woman. And she has been all over the news for the last several years for good reasons. I think I've also seen her name tossed around as a potential VP pick. So, you know. Mm-hmm. Who knows what it, where that will go. But she has written this book, which is like it says, like it's about, you know, leading from the outside. Like, how do you come from a marginalized community? Maybe you're female, maybe you're a person of color, you're a member of the LGBTQ community, maybe you're disabled. How do you use what you have to make real change, which is, you know, I think very relevant to our lives. I think that local politics have become so much more visibly important. Like local politics were always important, but I don't think a lot of us realized how important until, you know, especially with the head of coronavirus and Mm. there's no national leadership on this. So it really all does come down to, you know, who's your mayor? Who's your governor? Yeah. Like what's going on in city council for renters? Like these are things that I'm suddenly paying attention to in a way that it is now clear to me I should have been all along, but wasn't seeing the impact until, you know, COVID shines a light where we don't always want to shine it. But it's, you know, local government is so important. And Stacey Abrams comes from a local government background and is like here to show you not only what she's dealt with, but how you can make an impact. And I think that's, you know, something that all of us could stand to hear more about. And yeah, so again, that's Lead from the Outside by Stacey Abrams. All right, let's go on the next one. Please help. I loved Census by Jesse Ball, so did I, and The Buried Giant by Kazuo Shiguro. 
I'm looking for something with a similar feel. Slower pace, but beautiful writing, sort of introspective, I guess. I really like quote-unquote journey type of books, but I'm not looking for something like The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry by Rachel Joyce, Exit West by Mohsin Hamid, or The Hike by Drew McGarry. I liked all those books, but I know what you mean, uh, Kristen, though I really enjoy these books too. I'm going to be starting The Word for Woman is Wilderness by Abby Andrews, but open to pretty much any suggestion. Uh, mahalo, Kristen. Okay, my I'm going back. I'm going back a hundred years. Yeah, this is a this is a deep cut pick. Yeah, well, look, I am who I am. <laughs> what can you, what can I tell you? So this is death. My pick is Death Comes for the Archbishop by Willa Cather, which is about the comings and goings of an archbishop in the American Southwest in the eighteen. Kind of, it takes place over several decades, eighteen sixties, eighteen eighties, as he goes about the job of being an archbishop for all these tiny little parishes all throughout the Southwest. And if you like introspection and journeys and beautiful writing, there you go, because most of the time it's him walking from parish to parish, thinking about God, thinking about the universe, noticing sunsets and how beautiful the desert is, thinking about his place in it all. It's one of those things you you know, you know in your head, but sometimes forget in your heart or your gut, like, how different transportation used to be. So he'll get a letter that some parish needs a visiting. He's like, yeah, I'll be the, I'll leave today and I'll be there in eight weeks. Right? He's like, well, <laughs> wait a minute. Wait, you're going to be... Because he's got to take a stagecoach and he's got to walk for three weeks and do this other thing. But Cather uses this time to think about what it means to be in the world, like really in the world, like out in the, 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 the American Southwest in the desert and to have this new frontier, but also the indigenous people there that are still there and increasingly being eradicated and harassed, but then also different cultures coming together in the form of these parishes, which are some Mexican and some settlers and some other kinds of people. But it's really one of the more beautiful books you're probably likely to read. I know Maya Antonia is probably her best-known book. I think Death Comes for the Archbishop is her best book. Um, and I think really will will it will scratch a lot of the the itches you're describing here. So that's my Death Comes for the Archbishop by Willa Cather. I read that in high school, and I have such a strong sense memory of that book. Was it good or bad? Because that can be a tough beat in high yeah, school. Yeah, no, like, it was good. I think I was one of the uh, only people who liked it. Okay. <laughs> but uh, I remember it fondly, although I haven't revisited it since high school. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I that was that was a nice little memory lane mm. trip that I took there. My pick for you is mostly based on writing style. I also loved The Buried Giant, and I have read Jesse Ball, so I know what you're talking about. I picked Department of Speculation by Jenny Ophel, which doesn't have a like literal geographic journey, but the character absolutely goes on a journey. It is just a very internal journey, and it is deeply introspective. And her writing style is so fascinating because this is technically a novel, but it's a very fragmented writing style. You're in the POV of an unnamed narrator who is married and approaching like a different moment in her life. She, you know, started out as an artist and now she's a wife and a mother. And, you know, is dealing with all of the things that come along with that. She took this job uh, writing uh, as a ghostwriter to make the money and hasn't really had any time or energy to dedicate to her own art. And now she feels like maybe her husband is having an affair and like everything is sort of nothing is how she planned it. She thought she was going to be this, you know, she calls herself an art monster. And that's not where her life has gone. So she's trying to figure out, like, who is she now? Who does she want to be? Who can she be? given her circumstances and also like how do you deal with bed bugs what happens when your baby won't go to sleep like and also did you know here are some facts about russian cosmonauts it's fascinating it really is such a journey it is a short little book but it feels so big to me when i think back on it and she's just an amazing writer she's actually got a new novel out now weather that i haven't read yet but is on my it's on the top of my pile and i believe did you talk about it on the book riot podcast Rebecca and I spent a whole episode on weather yeah. um, by Jenny Offal. And I think a lot of the things you said could apply to that one as well. I think if you like Department of Speculation, Jen, you'll really like uh, weather. It's a little, I, I'd say it's like Department of Speculation, but more so is how it's oh, called interesting. weather. A lot, of, yeah. a lot of the concerns are the same. The writing style is similar. So I, I would recommend them both. I'm not sure I'd recommend one over the other mm. necessarily. Recency bias would lead me to pick weather just because I have read it of late. But uh, my rec for you, Jen, on your rec <laughs> is that you do indeed read the book that followed up 
the book you just yeah. read. That, that, that's what we call a stretch. That's what we call a stretch. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, everybody read Jenny Ophel is like the short version of that. But yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think Department of Speculation will scratch some of the same issues, even though it's not exactly precisely what you're what you're talking about there. Um, and we will link to the BR podcast episode on weather in the show notes as well. So y'all can find it. But again, that was Department of Speculation by Jenny Offel. And now we will take another sponsor break. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. All right. Our next question comes from Molly, who says, I'm looking for books to read aloud with my eight-year-old son who's just entering third grade. All the books we've tried recently have not really held his interest. I'm a librarian, and I'm quite frustrated that I'm having a tough time figuring out what the magic formula is to get him engaged. Past successes have been Where the Mountain Meets the Moon, Letter to the King and its sequel, The Secret Garden, and James Harriet's Animal Stories. He liked the first couple Redwall books, but then lost interest. Uh, Alice in Wonderland was a little scary. Some of the books that have failed are the Harry Potter books, Little House on the Prairie, Warrior Series, Wildwood, etc. It seems he has little patience for stories that are too wordy, too scary, or too slow, though I clearly don't understand exactly what he wants since he's not liking what I choose. He's recently started asking us to read picture books again instead of the, quote, long chapter books that mommy likes, unquote, and said with an eye roll. (laughs) Any suggestions for things he might like? Uh, Jeff, I thought of you for this one because, you know, is Rowan about that age? My my kids are nine and seven, yeah. so if you average them together, I have two eight-year-olds. <laughs> you know, this is super interesting, Molly, because I I don't have the same list of books that haven't worked and have worked, or exactly the same language being put to it. And I don't know if it's the moment we're in. I don't know when this question came in, Jen, so I don't know if this mm. is recent or not. But my kids for sure are more interested in cozier welcoming, funnier, kind of closer to earth kind of books right now. Mm -hmm. I don't know, since we're not at school and we have to talk to about coronavirus and there's protests happening in Portland and helicopters, if, you know, reading about kids going out and putting their lives on the line to save the universe from whatever is maybe not the Mm -hmm. thing they're looking for right now. It's just a guess. So I, I guess that these are kind of 
not necessarily feel good, though my first pick is, but also just it feels closer to home. It feels closer to something that's within the realm of comprehension. So I've got two. The first book is called Lily to the Rescue by W. Bruce Cameron. There's actually two in this series, and I forget the name of the second one off the top of my head. They just came out. W. Bruce Cameron is better known for A Dog's Journey, A Dog's Per, whatever those books are called that are about a dog that's sentient, that, you know, whatever. But these are the, these are kids' books. And Again, these are read-alouds that I've done with my kids, and they love these. And some of it, they're funny. So basically, Lily is a dog, is the protagonist, who's the story is told through Lily's eyes, but doesn't understand humans. And her family that she's a member of runs an animal shelter. So the adventures are, we found a hurt crow, and we're going out to find the crow and figuring out how to help the crow and what's going on. And it's funny because the dog doesn't understand what a crow is or why they're doing it. But you hear the parents and Lily talking. And so it's just it's just all very... It's very down to earth, like there's a problems and there's stakes, but we have a family that cares about each other and they have things that they can do to help other people. And it's kind of comforting in that way. I, I'm not sure, you know, eight can have a lot of different reading levels. Mm. So, you know, my son could certainly read this on his own and my, my nine-year-old could and Rowan almost could. So from read aloud, it's a night fist for us, but they loved them. They laughed a lot and I did voices and the whole thing and they really liked that. The other one I would recommend is Ways to Make Sunshine by, Re- by Renee Watson. And it is explicitly pitched as Ramona Quimby for the modern world, is what this is supposed to be. Ramona Quimby by Beverly Cleary is a Portland author, and so is Renee Watson. And we've read some of those with our kids, but there's just enough in there. They're like, oh, yeah, this is 1954. <laughs> and a lot of it's fine, but then some of it sort of really isn't, to be honest. Mm. That we're not like. So we were really glad to see this book come out. And Ray- Renee Watson herself is a black woman from Portland, though I don't believe she lives here. And the, and the family li- is black, and they live in Portland, which has its own dynamics, as you know, all places have their own dynamics, but Portland has its own dynamic. And they're a family, and the father gets laid off, and they have to move houses, and she has to move schools. And a lot of, and you know, the character, I think, is about eight or nine. I think they're third grade. And so they're going through some stuff, but the family clearly cares about each other, and the siblings clearly care about each other. And it feels, the stakes feel real and grounded, and they don't gloss over anything about what it means to have some financial hardship, but it also feels like the, the family really cares, and it's warm, and it's enveloping, and we can, there's a sort of, we can get through this vibe that I think my kids were really reacting to. Um, so not to make it too personal, but those are ones that I just felt like, my kids are wanting something else from our reading time together as a family. So, so maybe, maybe your boy would like this too, Molly. I, I sure hope so. Those are helpful. I, I know it's a tough time for sure. Yeah. And it is hard to tell from, you know, what's working and what not's working. Like, what yeah. exactly is the thing? Um, I'm going to shout out really quickly Dragons in a Bag by Zeta Elliott, which I have talked about on the show before. I really love it. It's a much shorter chapter book, really fun, part of a series. So, yeah, I've, I've talked about it a lot before, so I won't get too into it now. But that might be a good place to go and try because it does have some magical creatures and some adventure. But I I was thinking about it as Jeff was talking, you know, it does have some very sweet family moments and like a sort of minimum of peril. Yeah. And the peril is like dinosaur related. So that's maybe, you know, fine. (laughs) (laughs) And you've maybe already tried this, but you didn't mention it. So I'm going to go back to uh, a personal favorite and that's the Phantom Tollbooth by Norton Jister. And I thought of it because you said that he made it through Alice in Wonderland, but thought it was a little scary. And to me... That's a great pick. Right? Oh, yeah. Well, good. I'm I'm glad I have a parental approval (laughs) on Mm. it. But it's got the wordplay. It's got, you know, this really like dry sort of old-fashioned sense of humor. Um, It's got great illustrations. It is not that long. And I think it's highly rereadable, which I know, like, as an adult, I am rereading comfort books right Mm. now. And it might Mm. just be, like... Maybe reading new stuff isn't the best thing. Maybe like finding something and then reading it over again might be comforting in a different way. Um, But the Phantom Tollbooth, you know, it's a classic for a reason. It's just it's just so fun. And the illustrations are so good. So, yeah. So the Phantom Tollbooth by Norton Jester might be worth a try. I think I need to try that with my kids. I've I've held that one in abeyance because I when I first want. So there's this thing that many parents who are bookish go through of wanting to read a favorite book with their kids, but they're not mm. ready yet. And so you put it in the back of your mind and you kind of forget about it. And I think the Phantom Tollbooth is one of those for me. It's like, I've been so anxious to, for when they're ready. And I've kind of frog boiled myself. <laughs> like, wait, are they, maybe they're already ready. And I just forgot to check on the, the boiling frog in there. But that, 
that could really work. That could really, and if they like math or yeah. anything else like that, that's especially great too. Because um, at that age of like second into third, third into fourth, where they're starting to have a little more mastery of, you know, the shapes and mm-hmm. geometry and math, that, that, that plays in the Phantom Toll booth especially well. That's a really solid pick. Am, is it my read? It's I've your read. So You're off. good. You're yeah, good. Yeah, okay, I'm off. All right. Are there any books that are structured like in-universe historical studies of a person or event? I'm reading The Fall of Paris by Alistair Holm, and while it covers a historical event that really happened, his prose style reads like narrative fiction. I enjoyed it a lot and would love to see it applied to creating a fictional narrative. If that's a thing that doesn't exist, then are there any books about revolutionaries that seem to know everyone? Reading about figures like Francisco de Miranda, Giuseppe Garibaldi, and Victor Serge, it sometimes seems easier to count the people that they didn't interact with. Thanks so much. Love your show. Alexander I guess I expanded revolutionaries a little more broadly, like not as a part of, you know, I guess, capital R revolutions, but intellectual, cultural, uh, and moral revolutions. David Leeming's biography of James Baldwin, I think it came out in 2013, is worth a read. And it seems like especially since the first round of what was called Black Lives Matter movements then, the first time we heard that phrase in 2013 um, with Trevon Martin, you would see float around the internet you know, James Baldwin gifts or James Baldwin interviews and videos and quotes. And I think a lot of a lot of current thinking is finding roots in Baldwin. So I think he's a revolutionary of his own kind. And the biography is he is a fascinating guy. And he had the, the thing I'm latching on to here knew everyone. You know, he was like childhood friends with like Richard Avedon. He may or may not have had a sexual relationship with Marlon Brando. And then he knew every writer worth his or her or their salt of the generation. He moved between Paris and France and just a wonderful life and a fascinating, entertaining, and provocative portrait history, intellectual history of one of the maybe the five to 10 most influential American thinkers and letters of the last century. I mean, you could have that discussion and one of the more interesting and cosmopolitan lives as well. So that's, it's just called James Baldwin by David Leeming. It's, it's one of these big 500 page biographies, but I just thought, I just found it flew past. So much is because Baldwin himself is so witty and entertaining and not, not off-putting in a bad way, but he keeps you on your toes to read or think about Baldwin, that having him off his language and letters in there makes the reading itself um, really fascinating and enjoyable. So that's my pick. That sounds great. I definitely will have to pick that up. Yeah. So I, it was hard for me to pin down, you know, exactly like yeah. what it means to have like in-universe historical studies of a person or event that was fiction. Mm-hmm. So I went with a historical biography. I went with Cleopatra by Stacey Schiff, which is absolutely a historical biography where you feel like you are in the world, you feel mm. like you're in that time, and you feel like you're immersed. I mean, Schiff has, like, this was really the book that put her on the map in a lot of ways. Um, and I believe it was, like, you know, a, a very good seller, if not a bestseller. It was a big deal. I remember this being a big deal. It was. It was. It was huge yeah. when it came out. Um, for good reason, I think. You feel like you can, you know, smell the spices in the market and you know you feel like you're there so in terms of an immersive historical biography like really Cleopatra by Stacey Schiff is 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 among the top ones that I've encountered Um, and her writing style is so accessible it is not a short book it's like it's close to 400 pages but it does just read you're just so drawn in Uh, you really just keep turning the pages which is you know a weird thing to say about a biography but Cleopatra was a fascinating person obviously knew all kinds of fancy Romans among other things (laughs) just like all of them I mean whatever sure Uh, and uh, yeah I think I think I think I'm not sure that I'm exactly scratching the itch you're looking for, but I'm trying. So again, that's Cleopatra by Stacey Schiff. I never read this book, I have to admit, but I do feel like that, I don't even what you call it, writing style, mm. angle, point of view, it was very, th- that's like a fertile idea to take and make it, make something historical, not make it historical fiction, but make it read like it's a novel and use as much as you can of actual historical events. I, I'm curious what the other reader likes for those kinds of things would be. Because I remember at the time thinking, this is such a smart way of resuscitating, uh, you know, kind of a moldy... I mean, when you're in Shakespeare and you're in like, you know, histories from antiquity, it can feel like uh, overtrodden ground. But that seemed like a very particularly smart way of reinvigorating something that feels familiar. Yeah. I mean, I I think this is what Eric Larson does so well also. 
Yeah. I, I mean, I, was, I like Unbroken by Lauren Hillebrand mm. also feels like the same mm-hmm. genre, but like, I feel like that's narrative nonfiction yeah. that the story is so compelling that you almost don't have to like do the fiction right, stuff. To, right, I don't know. Right. I, I could be wrong about that. I could, that's my own instant reaction. to. Yeah. That. Yeah. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's see. Okay, so our last question is from Rachel, who says, My mother and I spend a lot of time finding books to read for my great aunt. She is in her 80s and an avid reader, but can sometimes be a little picky about which books she enjoys. She likes literary fiction and has read most of the classics, but can be intimidated by prose that is too dense or experimental. Some recent books she has loved have been Call It Sleep by Henry Roth, The Garden of the Finzi Contini's by Giorgio Bassani, and The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. Our most recent recommendation was Min Jin Lee's Pachinko. Would you have any recommendations of contemporary novels that might fit a similar category? Jeff, what did you pick? Boy, this was tough because I was trying to find a through line between those books, and I'm like, Call It Sleep, The Underground Railroad, and Pachinko. Yeah. I, oh, so I, I guess I I went with literary fiction and prose that is not, if not you know maybe deceptively simple in its own mm. way you know that that's approachable but artistic and maybe understated. I picked the Turner House by Anja Flournoy, which the story of the Turners is um, it's a big it's a big family. I think thirteen kids in this family, and the matriarch is in her late eighties and needs to move out of the family house, and they realize that. This is, I think, set during the Great Recession. So it came out of that, you know, people being underwater on their mortgages. And they realized that in trying to sell her accounts and the accounts of the estate, that basically the house is worth one tenth of the mortgage. So we've got an, un- we're under, we have a family financial crisis. And the book is the, the siblings and their kids and their relationships, the relationship to their families coming together to try to figure out, to reckon with the house, the house being an avatar for their upbringing. It's a black family and the the neighborhoods they're in and their own experiences of American race, but they're also their own interpersonal family dynamics. So it has kind of big ideas and difficult questions, but it's domestic, which I think a lot of people can relate to. So it might make it feel more familiar. Now, I don't know, is reading about an older person getting ready to die too close to home to read? I don't know. To your great aunt? It's not sure. That's up to you to, to know there for sure. But that's the Turner House by Angela Florino, who I, I've been hoping we get another book out of, but I know she signed a big contract to write for TV. So she may have oh. gone up uh, up a couple of rungs in the paycheck ladder. And if Turner House is her only novel, I'll be sad we don't get more, but glad we got this one. So that's my pick. Good one. Good one. Yeah, it's an interesting combination of things. I like, Jeff, your characterization yeah. of like deceptively simple prose. Mm-hmm. I think that's a solid reading of that. I picked The People of Forever Are Not Afraid by Shani Boyanju, which I do think is a deceptively simple novel. She's an Israeli writer. She is, you know, a young writer. She won the 535 award in the mid-aughts as it, or mid-20-teens. Is it, I don't know how to call them anymore. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Somewhere in there, uh, like 20, 2011, 2012, maybe. And she served, as you do, uh, in the Israeli Defense Forces for a couple of years. And this book was born out of that experience. It follows three young women from a very small Israeli village. And they, you know, go to high school, they pass notes, and then they turn 18 and they have to do their mandatory military service. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, it's, it's a book that is deeply about the weird dichotomy inherent in serving in the military, which is like long hours of like boredom and, you know, incredibly mundane tasks. And then these brief, intense moments of violence or the potential for violence, Um, especially one of them gets stationed at a checkpoint. Uh, But they're also, you know, they're talking about boys, they're having relationships or leaving relationships behind, they're training as marksmen, you know, they're dealing with refugees, they're just going through all of these different experiences. And the prose is very straightforward, very accessible. Um, And the the story, I think, like their, their feelings are so sort of plainly stated, but it's got so much emotional depth to it. And it is really vivid, it sticks with you. And they're, you know, 
there's still scenes that I have no trouble recalling, even though I read this book, I think probably in 2011. So it's been, you know, what, nine years. Um, but it's, yeah. it's really, it's really stuck with me. And I think, I think it's a really interesting book. And, you know, obviously the, uh, Israeli Lebanon border is a very, intense thing to write about. Um, She, you know, managed to anger people on both sides. This book isn't about the politics of right and wrong, except in that the characters have to grapple with their place in this military situation. But it's not prescriptive. It is much more exploratory. So again, that's The People of Forever Are Not Afraid by Shani Boyanju. I haven't read that. That sounds really fascinating. Oh, I think you dig it, Jeff. Yeah, I, you know, the other one that came to mind quickly, have you read How Much of These Hills is Gold? Not yet. Yeah, by uh, C. Pam Zhang, which is historical fiction about Lucy and Sam who are siblings. They're Chinese, children of Chinese laborers it, during the gold rush. And it's also deceptively simple where, you know, it feels like just two kids kind of trying to make it from scratch, but it's about American culture and, and, and oppression and violence and history. And I, this is one of those books, I wouldn't be surprised if people are still talking about it in 10 or 20 years. Like, I don't know, maybe, again, recency bias, it just came out a few months ago. And last one, have you tried the, the Neapolitan novels by Elena Ferrante? I wonder would be interesting for this too. I'm sorry, with my brilliant friend. It's deceptively simple, very vivid characters. When you said about um, the people of Forever Not Afraid, remembering the feeling and the, the sharply drawn characters and setting, I think that's often makes for a really good read aloud too. Like, Sometimes I can get lost in plot in an audiobook of fiction, but if I have a, if it conveys a feeling or a sense of place, mm. then the plot doesn't matter mm-hmm. as much to me. So in a read aloud, it might something like my, my brilliant friend, where the plot sort of doesn't matter as much as the dynamics. Where I don't know how much of these hills is gold is pretty plotty. I, I'm now <laughs> vomiting up a whole bunch of secondary <laughs> recommendations. But you know what? Go take a look at them and see if you want. And we're done already, Jen. Jeez, Louise, <laughs> you did great. It goes quick. Wow. Anyway. There we go. Thank you, Jeff, for coming on and cheating up a storm. I always appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Uh, And thank you to our audio editor, Jen Zink, who is amazing and always makes us sound as good as we possibly can. Any issues are our own aside from that. She does a great job. Thank you all for listening. As always, if you are inclined to leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, we super appreciate it. It helps other folks to find the show. Thank you to our sponsors for making uh, today's episode possible. You can also find us on social media in between shows shows jeff well obviously they can find you on the book riot podcast oh yeah they can find me there yeah my social's not interesting <laughs> it doesn't matter <laughs> all right so listen to jeff on podcast you can find me primarily on instagram these days at i am jen irl that's spelled i a m j e n n i r l and we will be back next week <laughs> <laughs>